Good. Good morning, everyone. Really nice to be with all of you. Uh, I'm putting on the hat in, in faith that I'll probably need it. This is usually the first sunburn of the year, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes today. A uh, lot, uh, lot of other Easter hats I see going on, too, for the follically impaired. So do what you got to do, people. Uh, hey, thank you, Paulina, for that reading. Uh, thank you. I'll, I just want to add my thanks as well to the Thorntons. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, as, uh, as was mentioned, yes. <clears throat> yeah, this is the 19th time that we've been here, which is, is amazing to think. Our church is almost 20 years old. We, we're almost like a grown-up, you know, kind of, sort of. It's kind of exciting. I feel like a grown-up, you know, that, uh, that we've been doing this for, uh, for a hot minute now. Uh, and, uh, and thank you to all of you. So many have been part of this journey from the beginning, if not close to, uh, to the beginning. So uh, thank you, all of you, for that. A um, couple other thanks, special thanks to the worship and tech crew who were out yesterday doing stuff. They were here super early this morning and set up people doing all the things. And, uh, and Doug Lee is the quarterback in all this, making sure everything happens in the logistics. So big thanks to him and all of you folks who've been doing stuff. Uh, we want to give a shout out this morning too to our brothers and sisters in Mozambique. So uh, it, it's a really amazing thing. Our, our prayer as we started this church almost 20 years ago was not that we would become a, a big church. That was never really something we aspired to. We wanted to be a, a church where people lived into faith in a way that was really authentic and they did it with each other in a way that was really relational. And so our prayer was that if God chose to bless us with growth, that it would happen primarily through planting other churches. And that's happened. It's happened a lot. We've been blessed to plant seven other churches in Southern California. And, uh, and amazingly, in Mozambique, in the 15-ish years that we've been working there, uh, the, the ministry has, has grown to encompass two, almost three orphanages. We're breaking ground on one this year, uh, a host of micro-enterprise development, and a pastor training school. And, and to date... Uh, we've planted approximately 530 churches in Mozambique, which is just astounding. Uh, in fact, uh, they were telling me today, uh, today estimated there's about 20,000 people that are worshiping at Life Covenant Church today. We're about 200 of them, but uh, the rest are out there too. So uh, really, really blessed by that. And thank you to you as a church. Uh, it's it's been kind of a crazy prayer, a crazy vision that we've been living into these 20 years, but you've, you've really stepped up into it. So thank you, everybody, for that. Well, hey, uh, it is really a privilege for me to stand before you today and to read from the scriptures and talk about the heart of the Christian faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it, it's an amazing thing when you think about it. Uh, when you, you realize that Jesus of Nazareth never wrote a book, he never ruled a nation, he never led an army, uh, but without question, he is the single most influential person who ever lived, uh, has had more impact on human history than anyone ever. And even today, 2,000 years after the first Easter Sunday, uh, there's, there's approximately two and a half billion Christians in the world. Or to think of it another way, uh, today, Easter Sunday, almost one in three inhabitants of planet Earth woke up today believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, and what does that mean for us? 
uh, even as here in the Western world, as we grow more secular, um, too sophisticated to believe in the supernatural, too enlightened to, uh, to believe in Christian ethics, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, the church is growing exponentially. And, and even here, uh, amidst all, all the troubles we have in that sphere, even uh, our, our youngest generations, there's, there are more believers in those generations than there are in mine. And why is that? What is it about Jesus that is so compelling? Why is it that after 2,000 years, people are still drawn to him? And I, I want to focus on one portion of the text that Paulina read this morning uh, that I, I think gives a good answer to that question. There's three phrases there that sort of neatly summarize, neatly capture what Jesus came to do. What does death and his resurrection mean to you and I? So let's pray together, and we'll look at the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love for us. And we're grateful for this this break in space and time uh, to stop and receive from you, uh, to worship, to listen, uh, to learn perhaps some for the first time, some for the hundredth, God, what it is uh, to say that you love us and that your son came for us. And so we pray today that you would be glorified in our worship. Uh, We pray that even in the act of reading the scriptures together and talking about it, that that too would be part of how we worship. And we pray for our our hearts, uh, God, that our hearts would be fertile soil for you to work. May your word find good soil and grow there. Meet us each in the way that we need to be met. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So a little context, Uh, maybe a reminder for some, uh, but leading up to the first Easter morning, uh, Jesus had only had a public ministry for about three years. It wasn't really that much time. And from the beginning, there were those who were were, uh, part of the nation of Israel, and they were looking at him and saying, this might be the Messiah. This might be the one that the scriptures had talked about that we've been waiting for. Uh, Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. In other words, that, that the world was beginning to work the way that it should. That that was breaking in and that the world as God intended was beginning to take hold. People said that Jesus could heal others. He could heal with a touch or even with a word. He was teaching people how God loved them and teaching them how God would have them live. Uh, he invited people to be his disciples, to become his students, apprentices, learning from him how to live their lives. Uh, but with Jesus, it was more than just learning a lifestyle. Uh, and this really is the heart of it, that his claims were incredibly radical, that he was the son of God, and through him people could be forgiven of their sins, made right with God, and have eternal life. But this is where a lot of folks got confused, including his own disciples. There was an expectation that the Messiah, when he came, that he would be a a warrior, that he would overthrow the Romans that oppressed them. But Jesus kept predicting not that he would overthrow the Romans, but that he would die at the hands of the Romans. In fact, he said this was the plan, that he had to die so that others could be forgiven, that others who trusted in him could live. And then at Passover, uh, a little over 2,000 years ago, 
One Passover, when the Jewish people would come together and they'd symbolically offer up a lamb for their sins. Jesus was arrested. He was found guilty at a rigged trial and he was handed over to the Romans. And they beat him. They stripped him naked. They pounded a crown made of thorns onto his head and nailed him to a cross where he died. And this brings us to this morning's passage. Jesus had died, he'd been buried, and three days later, here he is alive, and he's appearing to his disciples. And this is what he says to them, and this part is in your bulletin if you want to read it along with me. Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Now there's three phrases here that really summarize what Jesus came to do. The first thing is this. First, Jesus came to bring us a new future. And we read here this phrase, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Forgiveness of sins. I, I think for us as 21st century people, this is a statement that can sound really trite, something that can sound really casual, even unimportant. But friends, I, I would suggest to you that what the Bible teaches us is that forgiveness of sins is the single most pressing need that any of us have. Why is that? The reason is that sin is the fundamental problem in our lives and in our world. The most serious enemy that we face in life is sin. And the reason for this is that we were made by a good and a holy God to have relationship with him. And sin, being the opposite of holiness, sin separates us from God. If you think about this just in terms of our purely human relationships, we see how this works, right? If you and I are friends and I lie to you, or I cheat you, or I steal from you, or I I treat you uh, hatefully or shamefully, Uh, separation starts to grow between you and I. There's a gulf that happens between us, and unless that's repaired, there's damage that enters into that relationship. And, And the Bible uses that as a metaphor to try to help us understand what it's like for a God that is without sin to be in relationship with those who do have sin. And how much more with a God who is entirely holy Is there a separation between him and those of us who are not? Those of us who, uh, in spite of our best efforts, find ourselves again and again falling into sin. Uh, This is what the Bible calls spiritual death or hell. Uh, And this, the Bible teaches us, is the future that we are destined for. It's the natural outgrowing, the natural result of being people who are sinful. It's not possible to spend our eternity with God because of that. Interestingly, this is, this is something many of you know, but uh, all religions, all of the world's major religions agree on this point. Uh, they differ in many other ways, but all agree that there is a judgment, that if there is a God, there is a judgment that comes with that too, that something has to be done to rectify the situation of our sinfulness. And so for Jesus... 
Jesus comes saying that we could have a new future, that the future that we are headed for doesn't necessarily have to be. In fact, he made the claim that through him, we could be made right with God. That what he was doing in allowing himself to be killed was taking on himself the punishment for our sins. He was that final Passover lamb. He was that better Passover lamb. The one who died for the sins of the world. And in dying in our place, he claimed that he could heal our damaged relationship with God. This, by the way, is what the Bible calls salvation or heaven. Uh, It's, you know, in our popular imagination, we think of heaven as kind of this paradise and, you know, where all good things happen. That's true in a sense, but in the barest sense, heaven is simply being with God forever. Jesus says, once your sin is removed, then that is something that we can live into in this life and in the one to come. Uh, I had the goofiest story come to mind this week. I, I haven't thought about this in years. Um, but when I was in my 20s, I was a rock climber. And uh, I had this, this one friend named Joey who was kind of a wild man, always up for, for things that were a little bit beyond what our capabilities really were. Uh, but he was, he was a little older than me and, and this big, tough ex-Marine. I just really respect him. So anytime Joey was like, hey, let's do this, I would think, well, that's probably a good idea. And sometimes it wasn't. Uh, but, um, but I remember we took this impromptu climbing trip down into Mexico one day. He just called in the morning. He was like, hey, are you doing anything? And I was like, no, not really. He says, I'm coming over. We're going to Mexico. And so I was like, okay. So he says, I, I've heard about this place, this remote climbing location in Mexico. And it's about two hours south of the border. And we're, you know, we're zipping down there. We're on our way doing our thing, and there's this huge truck that's blocking traffic. It's just a two-lane road. I have no idea where we were, somewhere in Baja, but there was nobody else around. There's this huge truck that's going too slow, and Joey says, let's just go around him. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. But he didn't mean pass him on the road. He, he decided we're going to off-road it. So he goes off the road and tries to, to pass the truck on the median, and we almost made it. <laughs> But then we hit something and just totally exploded one of the tires, cars swerving all over, and we made it back to the road and kind of limped our way down the street until we came to the shack where there was an old man who was just selling various weird things. And we, we pulled over to the side of the road, and I, I said to Joey, okay, where's the spare? And he just has his hands on the wheel, and he's not really looking at me. He said, I don't think we have a spare. It's like, we're in the middle of nowhere. What are we going to do? And so anyway, we, we go into this old man's shack. And one of the things he's selling, remarkably, are tires. And there's one that fits our truck. And about this time, I realized that, that we had left that morning so quickly, I hadn't thought to bring any money. <laughs> Neither had Joey. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I think about this. I'm like, how did I make it through my 20s, right? It's, crazy. So here we are in broken Spanish trying to say to this wonderful old man, uh, we have no money, but we really need you to give us a tire. And, and he's, he's saying, no way. Am I giving you anything? Of course. And all these things are running through my head, right? This is in the days before cell phones 
We have no way of contacting anybody. We're in, I don't even know where, in Mexico. We've broken a handful of laws already. The old man is looking very nervous. I'm afraid he's going to call the police on us. We have no money to buy a tire or to bribe the police, whichever eventuality comes first. <laughs> Terrifying situation. And finally, out of the goodness of his heart and, and the exchange of a small, virtually useless radio, uh, the, the old man gives us a tire for our truck. And we, the smart thing, I'd love to tell you, we turned around and went home. No, we went on and we went climbing. <laughs> but eventually we made it home, which is why I'm here today. But I, I was thinking about that this, this week because uh, it was one of a handful of situations in life where I found myself absolutely at the mercy of somebody else. My prospects in that moment did not look particularly good. And I needed someone else to care enough to step in and change my situation. He did, in a minor sense, give us a new future that day. It was, it was around that same time in my life that I realized I needed that on a broader scale too. Uh, I'd spent the last four or five years of my life running from God about as, as best I could. Uh, I didn't not believe in God. I could never quite get there. But I, I really tried to have whatever I believed about God be obscure enough that I didn't really have to pay attention to him. Because there was part of me that knew if there is a God, I'm in trouble. My life doesn't look like anything that any God would approve of. If I was being really honest, I didn't always approve of who I was. I needed a new future. Friends, this is what Jesus promises. That all the things that we have done, and not, not all of them by any stretch are bad, but all the things that are, the sin that separates us from God, the sin that separates us from others. Jesus says, I've come to give you a new future. I take that on myself, and I take the penalty in your place. Uh, that's first. The second thing Jesus refers to in this passage is that he's come that we might have new brothers and sisters. There's three very important words in this passage. This mic just cut out? Okay. Is it back? Okay. If I need to move to a new mic, will you just give me the sign, guys? Okay. Or yell at me, because I probably won't be looking at you. But. but Jesus came to that we might have new brothers and sisters. Hear this again. Verse 46, it says, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, and to all nations. And those words are really important too. Jesus came to heal our relationship with God, but also to heal our relationship with one another, uh, to give us, as it were, a new family, new brothers and sisters. Now, sin always separates. It separates us from God. It damages our relationship with him, and it also causes separation from each other as well. And we see this in our everyday lives. We see it in our families. We see it in the divisions that exist between us. But maybe nowhere do we see it as clearly as in our tribalism. That there's something in us as humans that likes to ally with others who are like ourselves, 
and exclude those who are outside of that. And however we reckon that, whoever in our minds people like me are, we have a tendency to become tribal with them. Uh, frequently, we find those lines happen along the lines of skin color or ethnic background. But when you think about it, racism really is just the beginning of this. There's so many ways in which our tribalism gets expressed. We like to sort ourselves by people of the same race, by people of the same class, as men or women, as citizens of a particular nation, by how we vote, even by things as trivial as the music we listen to or how we dress. And our sinful self will let just about anything become a barrier to others. Anything that says that I am superior, that I am in and the other person is out, uh, any way to separate, we tend to gravitate towards this. And we feel this, don't we? And we are, are living in which, at least in my, my lifetime, you know, I, I've never experienced or seen the kind of separation that we have in our nation, the kind of tribalism, the kind of hostility towards people that we consider to be other. But friends, the message of Jesus cuts against this. He was insistent and explicit that though God had used the people of Israel in a special way, God was not just for them alone. That this message of love and forgiveness was for all people, for all the nations, as Jesus says. In the original language this was written in, that it means all of the ethnicities, all of the different groupings that we could have. And in Jesus, the message is that you don't have to be a part of that tribalism. That you get to love everybody, not just those you consider your own. And this was one of the most shocking phenomenon in the ancient world as the, the Christian church began to spread around the Mediterranean. These first churches were made up of people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. Christianity elevated the place of women and did not consider men to be superior. Uh, rich and poor were part of these churches. And those things never happened in the ancient world. This was entirely new. Uh, the historian Thomas Cahill, he writes that Christians were the first group in history to cross boundaries of race and gender and class. These are things that for us today we think of as being sort of self-evident, but they were not. An uh, example of this would be uh, Aristotle. He taught the opposite. He wrote in the 4th century BC, and he summarized the way this assumption worked like this. He said, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. He said this is what was self-evident. This is the way people thought in the ancient world, that some were meant to be slaves, others to be masters, that men were inherently superior to women, that the wealthy were made of better stuff than the poor. Uh, one of our most prominent historians, his name is Tom Holland out of Oxford. This is not Spider-Man, Tom Holland, different one. But he's an interesting character. He, uh, he was raised Christian, stopped believing in the Bible as a boy, and he was far more attracted to the Greek and Roman gods than to the, the crucified Jesus of the Bible. But after years of research, Holland has concluded that even secular Westerners are deeply shaped by Christianity, that Jesus was in fact the inventor of what we now in the modern world call human rights. 
Cahill, he writes, or Holland, he writes this. He says that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. The origins of this principle of equal worth lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. That all people are created equal. This has its genesis in Jesus Christ. He came, friends, to bring us new brothers and sisters. To tear down not only the barriers that exist between us and God, but those barriers that divide us as people who find differences among ourselves. In Christ, there is a greater sameness that binds us together. And again, that is the forgiveness of sins. It is that a God loved us enough to come to us and to make a way for us to be made right with him. Uh, To be a follower of Jesus means that we enter a community of people who are learning together how to live as brothers and sisters. And finally, one more. Finally, Jesus came to give us a new purpose. And in that text again, Jesus says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Right? Power from on high. What does that mean? Uh, it's, it's an odd phrase, but it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, that Jesus taught that after he died and rose, that he would spend, send his Spirit to be with us, to actually indwell his followers, uh, but more than that too. The Holy Spirit means that we are never separated from God. Uh, As he indwells us, it means that we are always with him. But beyond that, it means too that we might be given power to be part of God's mission. Jesus came not just to save us, but also to enlist us in the work that he is doing in the world, to be part of of the healing that God is bringing to our broken planet. Uh, Jesus came to give us new purpose. And friends, we need this too. Uh, I don't know if you follow these things, but uh, this last spring the CDC issued a report detailing that we are in the worst mental health crisis in recorded history. Uh, It's tragic and it's ironic that we have grown to become the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. And right along with that, study after study reveals that we are becoming less happy, less well-adjusted, less mentally sound. Why is that? Well, I think, I think that's a big topic. But I would assert that at the heart of it, there's a crisis of meaning. That we've lost our place in the larger story. That we've replaced God uh, with the almighty self. And in our quest for self-actualization, we've lost what it means to be truly human because we can't be truly human when we are disconnected from the one who made us as humans. And so when we read that Jesus came to bring us new purpose, friends, these are words that are profoundly important for us because we need that so much. We have been reduced as a people to chasing the paycheck so that we can chase retirement, so we can hopefully raise kids that are okay, so that we can hopefully eke out some happiness, watch some Netflix on the weekends, and occasionally take a trip. And that is too thin a story to sustain us as people. We were made for so much more. 
And Jesus calls us back to that new purpose, that we are sent together by God for good in the world, that we are to be the hands and feet of Christ, that we are to bring his healing, that we are to bring the love and grace of God to others, that we are to be part of making the world the way that it should be, that we are to be part of breaking down the barriers between races, that we are to be part of alleviating the suffering of the poor and granting opportunity to those who need it. We are part of a larger story, and we have lost that. And friends, part of, it, of what it means to follow Jesus is not just to live as a forgiven person. It's not just to go to heaven when you die, but it's to live as a person with purpose. Because God is at work in the world and he calls you and I to be part of that work. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to the good that God would bring. Jesus comes to give us a new future, to give us new brothers and sisters, and he comes to give us a new purpose. And what would we do in response to this? Uh, there's, there's one action word in the text that we're looking at, one action for us. It's the word repentance. Uh, it's, it's a word that has, I think, maybe some weird connotations for us. But what does it mean? Uh, there is an aspect there of sorrow over our sin. But moreover and more literally, repentance means a change of direction. It means that we stop a self-focused way of living and we enter into a God-focused way of living. We do a U-turn. We change the direction in which we are living. As Jesus explained this to his followers, he would invite them, or his would-be followers, he would invite them to come and follow. To commit to him means to become his apprentice, his disciple, to learn from him how to live our lives as he would live our lives. He's the rabbi, and we become the disciples. He is the Lord, and we become his subjects. Uh, And friends, in that, uh, it's probably evident, but when we commit ourselves to Christ, we don't suddenly become perfect, but we start a journey to becoming more like him. And friends, this is the promise of Jesus, that when we turn and we put our trust in him, when we make this turn of repentance, that he comes into our lives, that our sins are forgiven, that our future, both now and in eternity, is secure, and the process of becoming his disciple begins. Uh, Part of the message of Easter morning, friends, is that each of us has a decision to make, either to invite Christ into our lives or to ignore him and hope he goes away. This might look different for each of us, depending on where we're at. Uh, For some here this morning, for some of you, uh, this is something you've you've never done. You've never placed your trust in Jesus, never repented of living your own way and deciding to live in his. And if that's you this morning, I I want to invite you to put your trust in Jesus. Uh, In a few minutes as we, we take communion, we continue to worship, and we pray together. Uh, I'd invite you to invite him into your life and to become his disciple. Uh, For others who are here this morning, maybe you can remember a time when that was your commitment, when you did make that U-turn and you said, okay, I am going to follow Christ. 
But in the time in between, whatever's come about, that's no longer part of how you're living. Uh, Perhaps you still believe, but maybe the church is something in the rearview mirror for you. The new brothers and sisters that God promises are not an active part of your life because you've checked out of that. Uh, Perhaps if that's you and you're feeling disconnected from the mission that God has called you to, disconnected from the body of believers that he has called to be your family. If that's you, then repentance looks like recommitment. Repentance looks like saying, I'm done doing this my way, and I'm going to trust you enough to live in the way that you call me to live. Friends, for others still, uh, perhaps you've been walking with God for a long time, but even as we read the Easter story this morning, it stirs something in you where you recognize there's an area of my life where that thing needs repentance. Or the truth is I'm not living as a person on mission anymore. Or I'm not living in connection to my new brothers and sisters. If that's the case, then repentance looks like turning to Jesus and saying, I'll trust you in those things too. I'll trust you enough to hear you and to obey. And friends, this morning... As, uh, in a minute as we, we come to the communion table, uh, I want to invite us into just a couple minutes of prayer and again into a, a bit of silence. And in the silence, would you listen intently uh, to what God may be saying to you? Let's be silent together and then I'll lead us in praying.